0: Hi, my name is Sydney Milton and today we are going to be discussing Technique number 58 from the Teach Like a Champion book, Positive Framing. So what is positive framing? This is about framing your interactions with your students, specifically any corrections um, in the academic setting or behavioral setting so that they reinforce a larger picture of faith and trust in your students even while reminding them that there was a better course of action they could have taken. We all know that people are motivated by the positive far more than they're motivated by the negative. If a student is seeking success and happiness, they're going to get stronger action than if they're um, seeking to just avoid punishment. The power of the positive should always influence the way you teach. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be careful about responding to off-task or non-constructive behavior. You still need to fix and improve behavior and you need to do it consistently with clear um, consequences when necessary, but it's gonna be far more effective if they're framed positively. If they remind the person that you're talking to that you want them to be successful and that you believe in and you trust their intentions, unless of course they give you um, a specific reason to believe otherwise now one really important um, misinterpretation of positive framing is that people think it means you should just avoid making corrections and only talk about positive behavior the author of this chapter refers to that as circum narration so for example you have a student who is off task and instead of telling that student you need to be on task in a way that's positive the teacher instead chooses to narrate this circle around the student praising the student's around him in that circle for their quote positive behavior. Such an approach can risk giving positive reinforcement to just average expected behavior just because it happens to occur in convenient proximity to the negative behavior of that student, which is going to cause more mediocre average behavior because it makes students think what was kind of average mediocre is praiseworthy. Or even worse, if students realize that your praise of that mediocre behavior wasn't sincere and that you were just doing it to get the attention of your off-task student, it makes your praise come off as just disingenuous, like you didn't really mean it. And it also suggests that you are afraid to address that student's behavior and that student may choose to test that and push your limits even further. So in short, it's better to just address that student directly but positively. So you could say to them, David, show me your best, or David, check yourself to make sure you're sitting up. Using positive framing allows you to give critical feedback, keep your classroom culture strong, and it even signals that making mistakes and learning from them are positive. Because it's important to show your students that everybody makes mistakes and you can learn from them and continue to grow from them and turn your mistakes into a positive. So using positive framing in your classroom to correct and guide um, behaviors um, is gonna be most effective if you follow these six rules. So the first one is to live in the now. So when you're in front of your class teaching a lesson, don't focus on what already happened and what students can't currently fix. Talk about what should or should happen next um, in your lesson. So you can do it firmly and forcefully if needed. See technique 57 for this. But you need to focus corrective interactions on things students should do to succeed from this point forward. Not what they should have been doing, not what they should have done five minutes ago. You need to focus on what they should be doing from now till the end of the lesson and from this point forward. Of course, there is a time and there's a place for thinking about what went wrong in your lesson, what you could have done better, what the students could have done better. But while you're in the middle of a lesson, that is not the time. So give instructions next time if you follow champs, for example, of all right, students, let me see you in your champs instead of saying students, you should be in champs. I don't see you in champs. Why weren't you guys in champs instead of focusing on what they should have been doing two minutes ago? Focus on what they need to do now and for the rest of the lesson for it to be successful. Next, you want to assume the best. A lot of times as teachers, or just in general as people, we tend to assume that we know the intention behind a mistake. Um, And we use words that imply that a student did it on purpose, that they were being deliberately disrespectful or lazy. Um, So some examples might be, stop trying to disrupt class, why won't you use the feedback I gave you? Or hold on class, some people seem to think that they don't have to push in their chairs when we line up. Saying statements and using word choices like this gives bad intentions to what could have easily just been a misunderstanding. Um, Maybe they were distracted, a lack of practice with something. Because what if the student was trying to use your feedback or what if they really did just forget about the chair? Everybody forgets sometimes and that's okay as long as you give your students the opportunity to fix that mistake and go back and push in their chair. So unless you have clear evidence that A behavior did have bad intentions behind it, it's always better to assume that your students did try and will continue to try to do what you've asked them. So one way to assume the best, you might want to consider using words such as forgot or confused. So for example, you could say, just a minute class, a couple of us seem to have forgotten to push in their chairs. Let's try that again. You're giving your students the benefit of the doubt and showing them that you know that they were trying that maybe they just forgot. Um, Your scholars can focus their energy on doing the task right instead of feeling defensive and trying to argue with you about why or why not they didn't push in their chair. Also, this approach using these words can build trust with your students because it shows them, again, that you assume that they want to do well and believe that they can. It was just a matter of fixing some tiny little details. Um, Using the word confused, again, can also be a good assume the best word. For example, Just a minute, some people appear to be confused about the directions, let me give them again. Or an even better approach can be to assume that the error may have been your own as a teacher. Um, I feel like oftentimes teachers want to point the blame to students and assume the students weren't looking or paying attention, but sometimes you may not have explained the directions very clearly. So you could say, just a minute class, I must not have been very clear. I want you to, and then fill in whatever directions you want them to be. This shows that you as a teacher take responsibility for when you maybe didn't do something right or maybe you didn't nail the details. Um, And it shows the students that it's okay as long as you take responsibility. And it shows that you know that it's not always the students who made a mistake. And of course, a great way also to assume the best is to use phrases that express minor struggles as sins of enthusiasm. So what does this mean? It means that you're suggesting that there was a positive intention for a behavior that kind of just went wrong. So, for example, you could say to a student if you see a group of students running down the hallway, you could say, wow, I love that you're so excited to get to math class. But, you know, we walk in the hallway, so why don't we try that again walking? So you're focusing on that. You're assuming that the students were just so excited to get to math class, even if they weren't. But you're just assuming they are and you're focusing on that, but then still giving them a chance to correct their behavior. And one super important thing with assuming the best is you need to make sure you don't overuse this approach and you need to use it only when the motivation of an action is unclear. If you know that a student has bad intentions behind what they're doing, um, if they're challenging you, testing you, purposely being disrespectful, don't pretend like you don't know and don't pretend that they have good intentions when they clearly don't. In these cases, you need to just address the behavior directly with something more substantive than an assume the best approach such as maybe a consequence or you might have to have um, some private correction with the student individually. Your direct and decisive action will stand out much more if students commonly hear you assuming the best. Even in tough cases, say a student has done something very wrong, very clear intentions There's still a place to assume a there's still a bit of a place to assume the best. You wanna be careful when you are talking to these students individually that you let your words judge their behaviors, not them as a person. So you could say, that was a dishonest thing, instead of saying, You are dishonest. It might even be better to say something as, that was dishonest, and I know that's not who you are. Because obviously a person is always better than when they're making mistakes and our word choices are going to give us the chance to show that we still do see the best in our students and we never want them to think that we see the worst in them. We want them to know that we see the best in them. Next you want to allow plausible anonymity. So this means that um, as discussed in chapter 11 of this book, you want to begin by correcting students without using their names if possible. So if a few students are struggling to follow your directions, try making your first correction something that addresses the whole class instead of just those students, because in most cases, this will give you results much more quickly than calling out every single individual student who is not doing what they've been asked to do. Saying to your class, wait a minute, third grade, I hear calling out, I need to see you quiet and ready to go is a lot better than lecturing any of the students who are just calling out in front of their class. Similar to assuming the best, you can still give consequences while preserving anonymity. So you could say some people didn't manage to follow directions the whole way, so let's try that again. When there is no good faith effort by students, it might not be possible to maintain anonymity but naming names should never be your first move. It's important to remember that you can deliver consequences anonymously um, and that doing that can stress shared responsibility among your students. So some students weren't doing their job, but everyone has to own the consequence. Next, you wanna narrate the positive and build momentum. So look at these two statements um, made by teachers. So the first teacher stopping before giving a direction says, I need three people thank you for fixing that David now we're almost ready now we're there so let's get started the second teacher in the exact same setting says I need two people paying attention at this table some people don't appear to be listening this table also has some students who are not paying attention to my directions I'll wait and if I have to give detentions I will if you're gonna waste my time I can waste yours So think for a moment and kind of compare the way that those two teachers reacted. So the first teacher, things are moving in the right direction because the teacher is narrating the evidence of this, um, of students doing what they're asked, of them getting better as time goes on. He's calling to his students' attentions to this fact and he's normalizing it. He's not praising students for doing what he asks, he's just acknowledging and describing it. He wants his students to know that he sees it But he doesn't want to confuse doing what's expected, which is what they're doing with doing quote great. This ties back to that first misconception we have of um, That circum narration. You don't want to address and praise mediocrity. Now, if you look at the second teacher, that's a completely different story. Things are going wrong and they're only getting worse. Um, this teacher is doing their best to call out attention to the normality of being ignored and the fact that this occurs, it's occurring without consequence. That second teacher is narrating the negative. Um, they're, he's broadcasting his worries and anxieties on his students and making them visible and prominent and shaping those students' views of what is happening in his classroom. He's creating um, a, self, a self-fulfilling prophecy of narrating negative behavior into being. So the first teacher is exemplifying the very basic principle of just narrating the positive help students to see the normality of positive behavior when it happens. Um, Catch positive responses early as they begin to happen and assume there is going to be more of them. Um, Too much praise can make you seem surprised. So just reinforce kind of lightly just describing what you see without too much um, value or judgment added to it or offering a sincere thank you is sufficient so narrating the positive can also be vulnerable to being misused and um, misapplied so it's important to narrate the positive only when there are positives again don't narrate mediocrity and also use it as a tool to motivate group behavior as students are deciding whether to work to meet expectations not a way to correct individual students after they clearly haven't met expectations next you want to challenge your students Students love to be challenged to prove that they can do things to compete um, to win. So go ahead and challenge them. Um, Students can be challenged as individuals or as groups. Um, So some ways that groups can compete is you can do groups within your class. So for example, you could maybe do a Kahoot with a few different teams where they're competing against each other. You can have um, your class compete against other groups. So maybe another homeroom if you have a competition you can think of for that. One example of some competition in your classroom is you guys have been doing so good this week let's see if you can sit and read and write for 10 minutes. So in this case you're challenging your students um, against the clock against the timer so that's going to really motivate them knowing that they're trying to do it for 10 minutes it's going to motivate them um, because you're using a positive outlook. Lastly you want to talk expectations and aspirations. So when you when you're asking um, students to do something differently, to do something better, you're helping them to become the people they want to be or um, you're helping them to achieve enough to have their dreams. So you can use moments where you ask them for better to remind them of this. Remind them that you're not asking them for better. You're not doing it to harp on them and constantly make them feel like they're doing something wrong. You're doing it because it's going to help them succeed in life and you're trying to make them be the best version of themselves for example if you're having a student revise paragraphs tell them you want them to write as if if they're a third grade student as if they're already in fourth grade tell them try one more time write like a fourth grader or write like an author Um, it's nice that you're proud of them and it's going to be wonderful you need to tell them that but the goal in the end is not just for them to please you um, but for them to leave you as part of um, a long journey toward a more distant more important goal. So it's going to be useful if your framing and the way you're talking to students connects them to whatever that goal is. So those are the six rules to using positive framing to correct and guide behavior in your classroom. So just always remember people are always going to be motivated by the positive more than the negative, and that the power of the positive should always influence the way you teach. Thank you.